Where else are you going to go to a dive bar and drink with a polar bear, though? Very true. Hello, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds Comics Podcast, Episode 79, Three Amigos Edition. Hey, I'm Carissa, and I'm joined by some other nerds, Rory and Ryan. Hello. Together, we take on this week's comics. Each week, we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now and go read your week's books, then come on back. Each week, one of us picks their favorite book, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd, and this week, I stole Ryan's pick for the pick of the week, and it goes to Jean Grey, number three. Our companion song is Under Pressure by Queen and David Bowie because, well, I feel like little old Gene is feeling a lot of pressure to figure out what the hell is going on with the Dark Phoenix and how to get herself out of it and not be a repeat of history. And just like in that whole line, the terror of knowing, yeah, she finds out some shit. And she's at the bottom of the ocean. Exactly. That was a, hey, I like the way you think. I thought that way too. (laughs) So take a listen. Alrighty, Jean Grey, number three, Marvel Comics, written by Dennis Hopeless, pencils and inks by Victor Ibenez, layout art by Al Barrio Nuevo, and colors by Jay Davis Ramos and Dono Sanchez Alamara. I'm really sorry if I murder your names. Nothing personal. <laughs> First of all, I would pick Jean Grey also probably on my own. This is my pick of the week for a couple of reasons. One, I am completely a fangirl of Dennis Hopeless's writing. I think he makes characters really relatable and their conversations seem realistic he has just the right amount of humor or maybe it's just my type of humor keeps me entertained and now to mention since we met him he's also a really nice guy so that's always a bonus when you're a fan of someone and you meet them and they're not a jerk so that's really good and also okay namor is just the ripoff version of aquaman we all know that the two big twos have overlapping similarity characters and the fact that you can make that submariner interesting and appealing to me and just not an aquaman ripoff off is mad kudos namor's been around forever there's not usually much you can make them to think that they're cool and so the fact that i was like man look at his sassy sarcastic ass i'm digging that and the fact that jean gray kind of was like yeah that's kind of working she even said that kind of thing around the same time as i'm reading the comic i thought the same i like that when it happens namor has always been an ass yes. yeah <laughs> it's like his defining trait i dig it is what i'm getting at namor was actually the first one Nice! I did not know that. But I think that most people in general think Aquaman, but I like that. Thank you for the history lesson. I did not know that. I would have assumed Aquaman was first also. It's like Hydrox cookies and Oreos. You know, Hydrox was first. My grandpa taught me that. So the book, Jean Grey is underwater and she's saying how everyone thinks that she's crazy. She's checked with everyone and she's just going on about how she's not a dumb scream queen and fighting weird, nasty beasties under the ocean when a giant old kraken mixed with like a... It's like an eel. Anglerfish. It's like a giant ass anglerfish dragon nastiness. It looked like a Tyrannosaurus fish to me. <laughs> or like if you had one of the things from the Avengers movies, but without its 
his armor on, and just the squishy insides, it would kind of look like this, maybe? That's a good point, actually. It does kind of look like that. Namor comes in, he saves her, being sassy and full of himself, and he's brushing her off. It's like, I got shit to do, girl. You go and do your thing, and he gets poisoned. She ends up helping him, and she's, like, trying to keep up, and she's trying to use her psychic blast of propeller through the water, and he keeps calling her a tadpole, and you see her, like, zipping around, and there's a really cute banter between them, which I really liked it. And then there's a part which I thought you guys were going to say you're surprised I picked it, the very fact that there's sharks in this <laughs> issue, which is terrifying and I don't like, but the fact that Jean's like, what is this nightmare fuel? I was like, oh, this girl, she knows me. I love her. That's what I would say. Because it is nightmare fuel. <laughs> they do the underwater stuff so well. You get the turtles swimming around and the sharks and then you get a sense of scale where the thing is eating like an orca yeah. as a snack. And their heads are falling off and uh, yeah, it's really well done. They get to the point where they're running and hiding and they're trying to get away from this thing because it, it has their scent and it's basically chasing them through the ocean and scaring everything out in its path. Eventually he agrees to let her into his mind because she's like, you're the one that came out on the other end, one of the only other Phoenix hosts that doesn't seem affected by it. And I love the line where she's like, come in, the water's fine. And then she does and he's like, well, it's actually a little hot and you see in his mind that he is not okay, that the Phoenix is there burning and just kind of grinning and burying it. It's not a pretty picture. Dead fishes floating and dead circling around him. I like that panel. I thought it was really well done. I like that that kind of shows you the regal nature of Namor that he's able to hold his shit together even when things are chaotic. A lot like Black Panther in a way. During this point the poison has taken thing and he can't move at all. The thing's coming he's telling her you need to go you need to leave you don't have a choice and this is how it will end. She steps up she brings her game she fights off the beastie kills it and impresses him and he's saying like yeah you're not the same as that Jean Grey you're different because before he's like Phoenix will eat you alive you're just this little waif of a girl you're nowhere near the same as the Jean Grey that was taken over before and she couldn't handle it so there's no way you can but then he sees something in her that is a warrior and he's like well then you need to train you're not a tadpole no more which seemed like a very high compliment from him I look forward to seeing her train I think part of what I really like about the Jean Grey series is that he writes young women I think really well something really realistic and endearing about her like I really believe her not really naive but this fresh-eyed dope trying to make her way in the world I agree with you that she's kind of this innocent figure but she's becoming hardened she's like coming into her own badassness yeah. throughout this series but she doesn't melt when she's faced with danger yeah she stands up and fights back i really think with the inner monologue that you get from her you get to see that adapt and change and i like that it shows some sort of weaknesses self-reflection that i think everyone does questioning second guessing yourself but then even despite that she pushes through those giant ass sea monsters characters that are perfect that have no weaknesses or doubts or anything like that they're not very interesting i think rory that's kind oh, of yeah. one of the complaints Big you have time. about like superman in general and this is not exactly that this is more like in the peter parker vein of heroes where you get to see their struggles yeah i don't know i think i'm a little bit different on you guys than this one i haven't really been enjoying the gene gray series all that much so far i've been actually kind of bored <laughs> namor had some awesome lines in this one could definitely appreciate his character the artwork looks great but the read for me has been tedious and not interesting just all boils down to her going around going guys how do i handle the phoenix it has not done anything for me yet <laughs> phoenix is one of my favorite stories originals i really like things where i get to see a new fresh mm-hmm. take on something 
something and like it moved around and stuff like that so I definitely feel it's more of a character driven piece and so there's not a lot of action I think a lot of it is mental it's like that twist on the story I'm digging this series I like it for the same reasons that I like Spider-Woman I mean Spider-Woman is at a different point in her life but I feel like the same insights that he has apply here I don't know why his Patronus is women he writes them really well indeed I also like there's a panel where she's doing the finger gun I think she maybe learned that from Quentin for her telepathic stuff when she's fighting the sea monster I think that's a neat little panel in the previous issues of Jean Grey I was like she has a definitely Molly Ringwald vibe in this one I think she's drawn she looks more like Sansa <laughs> I also like underwater how they have her hair move I think that's good art yeah. there the little details matter and that kind of stuff yes. we're ready to rate it up I gave this four and a half what is this nightmare fuel the artwork's definitely awesome on this I'm just not really digging the story it's just not tickling my fancy so I'm gonna give it two water danzigs I like this I like seeing her grow I will give this four a tadpole no longer alrighty taking off into something completely new and different right yep <laughs> back to redneck so we've got Redneck number three, Image Comics, written by Donnie Cates, pencils and inks by Lissandro Estran, colors by D. Cuniff. So we left off the last issue of Redneck. JV was going to showdown with the local religious thugs that they'd pulled up out in front of their house, and shit was about to get real. Well, this starts off with just carnage in front of the house and JV's like sitting on the steps. It's funny because they don't show you what he did, but there's just dead bodies everywhere and one of the trucks is rolled over on fire. People ripped in half and shit. It's like everything went to shit and JV's sitting there and he's pissed. And so he tells the main character, the main redneck, you know what you have to do. Like, you just couldn't let it. He's like, oh, fuck. And then turns out that there's stuff that happened off screen. So the two guys who had gone to, the two vampires that had gone to town to basically wreak havoc had gotten a hold of Father Landry, who's like the guy who started all this shit. So now they've gotten a hold of him. They pop out in front of the car as their rednecks are driving away, trying to get to a hospital. The vampires pop out in front of them, like kind of Jason style. They wreck it to just like rip off the door and yank him out and are getting ready to kick the shit out of him so it's kind of crazy with this this issue you really see exactly how powerful the vampires are when they actually unleash they're not little wussy vampires <laughs> no <laughs> this is not Lestat. So Bartlett knows what he's got to do. He wants to figure out what happened. And so he goes to the grandpa, who is the crazy old vampire locked up in the attic. Love that character. And holy shit, he's just as creepy as we thought he was going to be, if not more. <laughs> he's pretty fucking creepy. Yeah. He's freaking like this emancipated, rotting like Nosferatu with like no legs in a wheelchair with like a siphoned blood bag to him. It's great. Oh God, so fucking creepy. And like the shit he says is creepy. The way he's, they wrote his speech patterns just makes him fucking even creepier. He's like the creepy old man times like a thousand. Bartlett's like, we have a problem. He's like, mm -hmm. we? That's such an elder thing to say. Do you have a mouse in your pocket? He asked grandpa to get in his head and figure out who, who it was. And then he's like, oh, you killed the, which like pisses him off. Cause he's like, what? How did I kill him? And he's like, you didn't do it directly, but you caused the events. You set the events into motion. Everything is fucked 
fucked up because of things that you've done. And he tells them that he's making them soft and like the whole extending the hand out to the humans and stuff. That's the thing that's caused. Grandpa wants war. He wants the vampires to still roam the earth and rule as gods, essentially. Donny Cates has said this is him dealing with kind of his family's violent racist past and trying to move past it. So I think this is maybe the analogy of the old relative who's super racist and Uh doesn't like the new neighbors on the street kind of deal. This is exactly what I was thinking of. It did remind me of the crazy old rambunctious man who's, you know, because he's like sitting there telling, there's going to come a day when you're going to witness my purpose, is what the old man says. This whole back and forth reminded me of that crazy old relative who's an asshole and still like has delusions of what they can do and stuff. If Bartlett throws it back at him, then he's like, there's 20 armed men out here and you didn't do a damn thing. So, you know, how powerful are you? And then he like hits him with like this mind blast. While he's doing that talk over about the pigs and explaining Mm. what happens to pigs, it's going back to the boys and them embracing that father. Yeah. How they get bigger and grow teeth. I'm like, oh no, did they just create their own new monster out of this? What did they do? Because their whole thing is we're going to embrace you so we can kill you over and over again. But I feel like they might have just created a bigger problem. Mm, I don't see that going well. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking too. They wanted to embrace him, kick the shit out of him and then leave him for the sun. Killing him once would just be too easy, right? So they want him to (laughs) die over and over and over again. That's kind of what Grandpa goes to too when he starts talking about these pigs is that he says you've had us locked in this cage, specifically referring to himself. He's like, I just can't wait to see what, what happens to you when you're released, indicating that he's domesticated and soft. He wants to see him degrade back into a wild animal, essentially, especially because he's the one with the moral issues on all this one. Then when he comes outside with a little girl who also has psychic powers, has offered to read his mind to find out, because Grandpa never tells him exactly what happened. She's offering to read his mind. Bartlett is like, no, I don't want anybody messing around in my head. He kind of like talks down to her like she's a little girl and she gets pissed and goes into his head and then it's like Texas a long damn time ago and she's with Bartlett on a horse being chased by other vampires. The sun comes up, burns him to nothing and then the end of the thing he just says that he's going west. So This is before they were vampires it looks like. I wasn't sure if that meant that it was before they were vampires or whether there's some sort of vampire war but yeah they didn't all get burned up so it makes me wonder. I think this is before they were vampires. That's the feeling that I got. Which means that the little girl and him are basically the same vampiric age which is probably why she's pissed off that she's being treated like she's a child even though it appears she actually is maybe his actual child. I think that this is where Redneck is really starting to come into its own. I fucking love this issue. This one was the strongest so far for me. What do you guys think? I really am coming to like this as it goes on. This is so filmable. I want this to be picked up by HBO and made into a series or made into a movie. Awesome. I think a series would be better to give you more time but this would make an amazing TV show. Definitely. This issue so far is my favorite. It really hooked me in this one because the introduction of Grandpa he's just so mm-hmm. creepy he kind of has that Peter vibe if you've seen what we do in the shadows and like appearance wise it's just so interesting and he's just so creepy and like I love it. It's like a darker less sex true blood <laughs> I've been really enjoying the stuff that Donnie Coates has been putting out. Yeah, he did the demon pregnancy one, Baby Teeth. This one really hooked me. The other ones I thought were interesting because I feel like he's really nailed vampires politically and stuff like that in a way. And this one I thought is just, it's really good. That modern urban, even though it's their redneck, but like modern day kind of vampire times. 
Yeah. I think one of the reasons this is so strong is the same reason that Buffy is so strong in that it takes vampires and monsters and lets them stand in for social issues. That these old vampires are a really good stand in for the old racism of the South and the struggle against it. That metaphor works very, very well. Fits perfectly here. Tremendous storytelling going on here. And it doesn't look like anything else that's out there. And the vampires, when they vamp out, they are fucking creepy and scary yeah so true <laughs> let's just rate this up i'm gonna give this five bloodweisers <laughs> fucking love this shit i will give it four do you know what happens to pigs when they go feral i was gonna give it four and three quarter let the piggies play <laughs> nice. all right i'm taking us over to marvel for secret empire number five from marvel comics written by nick spencer pencils and inks by andrea sorrentino rod rice and joshua Casara. colors by rachel rosenberg so the reason there's a couple different artists on here is this is like a global spanning story that they're telling. So there are definite parts of this book that go through. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot. <laughs> and it's all, at least in my opinion, pretty fucking awesome what's happening. I really enjoyed this one. There's so many parts where you're like, well, that must have been the big reveal twist for the issue. Nope. And then you're like, huh, there's still a couple pages <laughs> left. And then you keep reading and you're like, oh shit, it's still going. Still crazy ass twist. So it starts out with a scene that reminds me a lot of your first introduction to Black in the Marvel Cinematic Universe where she's captured by someone and they're trying to interrogate her but she's there by her own choice and kind of manipulating the situation. So she's been captured by Madame Hydra and they're trying to interrogate her and you find out that Black Widow knows that Madame Hydra is actually using Steve to deal drugs and she has all this evidence for him and she threatens to turn over the evidence to Steve and Steve will fucking kill her if he finds out about this because she's corrupting his dream. And you find out that she wants a transport ship so they can go kill Captain America in exchange for the silence about the drug deals. That's what Adam Hydra is going to give them. And you also find out, which this next part would have been its own twist at the end of any other issue, right? Is the young champions that she's been training in the Red Room, they're infiltrating a medical facility to find someone who can turn the tide of the war. And when they go into that room to find him, it's this old man in a bed with all this medical equipment hooked up to him. They never say who it is but Natasha recognizes him and says this will win the war for us and what I think this is I think that's old man Steve Rogers back before Kobik touched his heart and brought back uh... the young one I think that's old Steve. I think. It could be something totally different, but that's what I thought. That's what I thought. There's also a really cool panel where Natasha is talking to Madame Hydra and explaining the deal to her. And there's these two Hydra thugs that are there. And you get this cool panel where Madame Hydra whips out her two pistols and shoots them in the head so they can't report back what was said. That was a neat little panel. That was great. So that's just the first couple pages here. Then you go into this kind of newer Steve Rogers with the beard out in the woods with these people. No, I'm Steve. And they never really say who those two people are. I have some ideas about who that might be. I think that this is maybe like the afterlife that they're in that they're trying to get their way back from. And I wonder if that uh... might be Rick Jones and War Machine, uh... who both have died and might be coming back. Maybe. First, I was thinking it might be Bucky, 
but I think the haircut makes me think Rick. It does look very Rick Jones-like. So they're talking about how in the dark times, it's friendships that sustain you and that's what kind of keeps them going. And we'll come back to these three in the woods because some crazy shit happens to them too. <laughs> but you get a nice little device here where Ant-Man is texting his daughter who he sent off to Europe to avoid all of this craziness. And he's basically telling her about all of the trouble that they've had. And we've been kind of wondering what's been happening with Black Panther. And we get a totally badass sequence here where you get to see oh, so good. they go to Wakanda and they want the fragment of the Cosmic Cube. And the Black Panther is not going to give it to them because he says he's seen people come to his lands before saying they're going to make things better. But all these colonial powers, they always end up kind of the same way. So he doesn't want to give it to them. And what he says, if this isn't about your personal desires, gather all the fragments here, bring them back and give me the Cosmic Cube and I'll make everything right. This is really about you controlling the world and your vision coming to pass, then you won't do that. So I thought that was kind of a cool <laughs> way for Black Panther to hold Wakanda separate from all this and he'll kill anyone who comes there to screw with them. But also, I think having some political commentary and a little bit of maybe wisdom and regal bearing. Pretty cool. I thought that was just a badass, very T'Challa thing type thing to do. <laughs> Ant-Man is explaining how they've been chasing after all these fragments of the Cosmic Cube and it's just not working. And then you see the next one they go to where they're in Madripoor and they're fighting these crazy mind-possessed people to get this fragment of the Cosmic Cube and there's the Gorgon there who is mind-controlling everyone and there's this really cool part with Hercules where he confronts her and she says, you know, I've killed gods before and that's when he tells her the god you killed was just a child and now you face a man and there's this awesome panel of red of Hercules just wailing on her. It's really, really awesome. So you find out that Shang-Chi is being held prisoner there and he had a fragment of the Cosmic Cube but he doesn't have it anymore and he can't remember who has it. And you find out that actually the White Queen came and took it from him and wiped his mind. But, you know, that's just like a flashback scene. Like, nobody else really knows that. So the X-Men also have a fragment of the Cosmic Cube which kind of takes you into the next scene with Hank McCoy is the ambassador from the mutant-only land to Steve Rogers and they're having this negotiation where Steve wants the fragment of the Cosmic Cube back and Hank is like, well, we're not going to do that. And they're having this conversation in front of Thor's hammer. And there's this really chilling ass speech, which is pretty well done from Captain America, where he talks about how the ancient kings of old would hang swords above their hall to remind people that they wielded that sword at one time and that they could pick it up at any time. And he says that he has wielded the hammer before and it would just take one swing of that hammer to cause all of the mutant lands to come crashing back down. And because the mutants have this kind of truce with Captain America, they're allowed to be off by themselves and left alone, which has been one of their fondest wishes for a long time. I mean, obviously that won't last for long. Once they wrap up all their stuff here, they're going to turn on them eventually. It's really interesting to see that sense of menace, and you get some explanations of why some of the people who are working with Captain America are doing so. You get more about the fact that this AI virus that's controlling him that Arnim Zola made, and you see occasionally he kind of breaks out of it, and he's like, wants to get back to Viv and like send her messages, but they're hacking his brain and stopping him from doing it. Wanda is possessed by a demon that's controlling her. The demon can't access all of her powers, but even just the little bit that he can access is still really fucking powerful. And then you get some really well done scenes of the torment that Thor is going through. The Captain America... 
Oh, that was some good Thor. <laughs> that that hammer is Jane Foster's hammer. That's the 616 Thor hammer. And because Jane Foster doesn't have it, she's dying of cancer. And they're holding her hostage and saying that they can save her if Thor does what they tell him to do. And also that they can restore the link between Midgard and Asgard, which has been severed. So Thor is like, I don't know what to do, Father. I've never trusted anyone on Earth as much as I have Captain America. But the things he's asking me to do are really horrible. I need wisdom. So he's pr- praying for wisdom, which is, of course, is not coming. Then you find this crazy ass. It just keeps going. Like this is just hit after hit after hit. <laughs> they can't get a message to the Darkhold dimension. So their idea is to build this time sphere. This seems like a really strange, weird idea to me. They're going to build this time sphere with a message in it. And then 200 years later, when this is all resolved or whatever, the time sphere will pop back up again and send a message back through time to current day to tell people in the Darkhold dimension what's going on. It seems kind of like a little weird idea, but that seems to be what they're doing. So this then you find out that Steve Rogers, that they have prepared an assault onto the place in, I don't know if it's in Las Vegas or New Mexico. I think it's in Las Vegas where they're going to go assault the place with all these shield helicarriers and blasting it with these massive laser beams, which isn't going to be enough to break their barriers, but they have something in store, which you find out at the end. So this is where you get the two kind of big reveals. So we'll come back to the Hydra carriers blasting the defenses and trying to get through. We go back to what I think is like the afterlife with Vietnam Steve Rogers walking with these people and they come across these traps like booby traps which kind of ties back into that whole Vietnam feel that you get for this and you find the Red Skull looking fucking fierce as hell. Yeah, old school. Yeah, he's like shirtless, covered in blood. He's got this huge wooden club with spikes driven through it. That is some nice artwork. And he says he's going to help Steve Rogers be restored back. Which reminds me a lot of in Secret Wars. There was a Red Skull series where he was more tribal or primitive and this kind of reminds me of that same character i don't know if it is the same character but that also kind of reinforces my idea that this might be the afterlife because the red skull is dead too so i think these are all four dead characters that are trying to get back to the real world and then speaking of dead characters we see so this helicarrier <laughs> is blasting down these laser blasts onto the shield fortress which is not going to be enough to get through and then steve says well we have a secret weapon and it'll only work for a little bit but we only need it to work for a little bit and they take you into this room and you see there's a man sitting at a table and you get Steve says hello Bruce and it's like hello Steve and it's fucking Bruce Banner back again so they're gonna fucking throw the Hulk out of the helicarrier down onto the fortress and let him smash the shit out of everything I also really like the picture they have of the Hulk his two eyes are different Mm -hmm. because he got shot through the eye with an arrow from Hawkeye. So that's kind of a cool little throwback. So this one I think is really, really well done. The art is fantastic. The story moves at a breakneck pace with revelations and shocks and plot being advanced. But you also get really insightful bits of character development that take place too. So I think this book kind of, for me, offers everything you want in an event book. This is definitely the darkest part of the series, but I think you're starting to see the shift happening, that there's starting to come into play. You also find out that Iron Man has been lying the whole time with his tracking device that he made to track down the fragments of the Cosmic Cube, that that was all bullshit. That he's just using the information that Rick Jones gave them to go to those locations, which is why the information is kind of out of date. So, Tony has again been lying to all the members of the Marvel Universe for what he thinks is a good reason. What'd you guys think of this? 
fucking amazing. <laughs> they just keep on swinging in this one. They just drop the microphone with every page on this. I couldn't get enough of it. It was intense. It was a little confusing for me because the artwork kept changing in style and while each art was good on its own, it had a little hard time for me to like, oh, what's going on? What's just happening? And so for me as a reader, I was just kind of, I felt very disjointed. It's like, like while there was really cool reveals like you said and really cool interesting parts, it just kept feeling really jumbled to me and just really hard to keep track and where I was or I'd just be getting into something and then it would jump and move and just something about it just, just didn't sit well for me though but I do say like my favorite part though was Natasha's part I really liked that whole beginning sequence I had almost the exact opposite experience reading it I mean I found that it flowed actually really well that each story in a way kind of melded into the next story everyone's different the different art styles kept what was happening and where distinct in my mind anyway so some people might like that I get that's why they changed the artwork so it would help with that flow it was just so jarring for me so are we ready to yeah. rate this thing uh i'm ready i think i will give this five hello bruce I love this one. I'm going to give it five secret weapons. I'm going to put it mid-range. I see why it's good, and but still wasn't as pleased as Punch with it as I could be. So good, a little above mid-range. So three, now you face a man. Because Hercules is yelling at stuff. Hercules, Hercules. <laughs> Alrighty, going off into space with Saga 44, Image Comics, written by Brian K. Vaughn, and art by Fiona Staples, as it should be. They are on the abortion planet still it starts off with a different couple knocked up a different pair of the wings there and it's like some soldier who care less and like a girl who's like really far along they get taken out by some centaur people like you do <laughs> those centaur people pick up the tracks which you're assuming is alana and all our uh, heroes speaking of alana she has gained some magical abilities that is usually only for the horn moonies since the fetus has died within her she's like absorbing the powers that would have been that kids and so she's doing like little magical cyclones and things like that and while they're kind of ooing and eyeing over that she decides to pull a exorcist and projectiles black ichor everywhere which kind of spurs them on to do something about what they came here to do they have disguises and they're actually trusting to leave the transgender prisoner soldier that they rescued he gives her his translation ring slash wedding ring they're trusting her by herself not to take the ship off and abandon them it's like a vote of confidence confidence in her direction which is pretty significant leap for them they hadn't in the past so the family goes to get on the train they're still trying to get them just to get really considered an abortion they're just trying to get the stillborn out of her so he doesn't rot inside of her as gross as that would be right but they have to go to the abortion clinic because, because it's a hybrid so as soon as they took the baby out they would see what it was and report them to the authorities correct so they're gonna jump on this old train and when they do jump he doesn't make it and between hazel and the powers that alana currently has they help hazel's going to save her dad she's using a spell and she yells at the magic and since alana has no idea how to use magic but currently has some i like if she raises her hand and goes what she said and her hands glowing <laughs> i like that too they save marco by the way it's one of those cool where hazel has marco in the magical ropes but then it's too heavy for her so she starts getting pulled off then the mother grabs her with the rope so there's like like everyone being held together mm -hmm. through these magical bonds. It's pretty cool. 
Yeah, it's a little cliche train robbery-esque, but it's cute and I like it and it works. We do see Petri, or I'm going to keep saying her name wrong, so Saga fans are going to yell at me. She's doing some magic spell and she's like she's trying to uh, <laughs> let go of someone, but that's when like the weird center people are watching her. She's doing weird fucked up magic, but I like how one of the things that she's praying for for her magic is to have someone to fuck. <laughs> you know, she is hard up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never asked you for anything before. <laughs> Alana starts having some weird dreams and flashbacks and the first one is her with those cheesy Frederick of Hollywood fuzzy cuffs like to a bed and I just noticed here that her nipples are pierced and I didn't know that before that must have happened after she was breastfed Hazel because I don't remember that but it's a pretty you know, graphic she's getting eaten out by some blonde guy I don't know who that is I think this is a flashback to like her maybe like college days or something before Marco that's what I thought at first too but then it turns really weird because then they start talking about how she was a junkie and from the TV show and he mentions this Hazel and then he looks like a vampire but she wakes up in the train car or well it seems like she wakes up you know and everyone's asleep then she starts hearing a voice and she thinks it's hazel and she turns to look and it's an embodiment of what their son would have been and he's just standing there going like i'm your son silly but then hazel's nowhere to be found with that magic and that icker going something is not right in the state of alana things are not going well and so i'm like intrigued but of course that's where it ends so damn you brian cave on <laughs> master of the cliffhanger <laughs> so what'd you guys think i like this i think the writing is pretty much on point for this the one thing i did really miss was that fiona staples moment where you get the unbelievable panel you've never seen before didn't really get that this issue it was awesome issue you know pretty much sug always is great all around don't really have anything negative to say whatsoever i really like hazel in here too i think she's adorable yeah i should urge if you are underage this comic is for adults only <laughs> definitely <laughs> this is definitely not an all-ages comic i'm gonna give it four magic cyclones i'm gonna give it four send me someone to fuck <laughs> <laughs> I think I will give it four. I want a foreplay. <laughs> oh, that was, that was a good yeah. one. You're like, oh no. Oh, that's awesome. Child misunderstandings. So funny. Alrighty, Rory. Yep. I decided to try a new one out again this week. We have Blood Brothers, Los Hermanos de Sangre, number one, Dynamite Comics, The Case of the Missing Skull. Written by Fabian Rangel Jr., art by Javier Martin Caba. So, I just kind of chose this one just out of curiosity, and I was pretty happy with it. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Yeah, you start off with one of the main characters. His name is Diego. He's got like this one eye, unexplained in the beginning, but he's got this one eye, this pale blue, and he's got like this big scar going across his face, and he's drinking in this bar filled with all kinds of goblins and fishmen and cyclopses and fairies and stuff. Really odd way to start the thing up. He's sitting there drinking and then he gets like accosted by this guy who's like well I'm the cousin of the guy you put in the hospital last week and he's like you know narrow it down so they're about to get in a fight and then somebody taps the guy on the back and it's like this big huge luchador yeah luchador yeah. <laughs> right yeah. behind him a glowing luchador yeah so it turns out they're brothers right hence the title so Gabriel's the luchador and he glows in the dark I'm guessing it glows in the dark when there's trouble so he's kind of like the sword sting in Lord of the Rings but he Form. Apparently they're both detectives. They get a call from police headquarters and they go outside and 
they get jumped by they look like orcs orc looking gangsters and gabriel slams them with some pro wrestling moves and shit <laughs> it's like power bombs which for you, those of you who don't know pro wrestling moves if you do them in real life will probably kill somebody <laughs> so they move on diego has this flashback to when he was in some war and he's in this trench and this weird tentacle grenade lands next to him and, him and his buddy and explodes and it ends up killing his friend but his blue eye can actually see ghosts now so that's what his superpower is from the police chief they're given this case where this skull was robbed from a museum and it's supposed to be a cursed skull so they give it to the uh, brothers when they go and they investigate he can see that there's like these footprints going away from it and so this skull belonged to like an Aztec priest who was said to be in communion with the evil gods and eventually his people turned on him and killed him and buried his body and so it turns out the brother's father was one of the people that were in the picture when they found the skeleton and he was also the only person who survived but he disappeared everybody else died under unusual circumstances they commit to finding out who'd stolen the skull so they start following these little ghost footprints that were there from the museum they end up in this bar it almost looks like the bar with no name they say that we're going to find out about this and we're the police and nobody's going anywhere until we get some answers so then they get sucker punched by this werewolf <laughs> werewolf <laughs> werewolf in a leisure suit it's not your traditional werewolf it's more the wolfman movie or teen wolf variety monkey no snout von cheney yeah exactly so he like sucker punches diego and then goes running off when they get out they can't find him so diego gets directions from a ghost that's walking by so they come up to this warehouse they go to get the werewolves and then all of a sudden there's like tons of other werewolves coming out after him so i enjoyed the hell out of this it's goofy and weird it's way out there but it's super fun it was like refreshing it was really fun i liked it it had such a sense of like an easy breezy sense of adventure it flowed really well it was an easy read i really enjoy the hispanic influence in this i like that aspect to it it doesn't seem forced like sometimes you try and shoehorn in a spanglish phrase or something and it just sounds fucking horrible like it doesn't fit but here it does it really well i like that the world is fucking weird and they don't really explain it like they trust you get a sense that you're going to discover as the story goes on about the world but they don't need to give you 10 pages of exposition in issue one which is a really smart decision the world kind of remind me of the goon in a way oh yeah it kind of has weird aspect to the world like creatures and stuff it reminds me of fables yeah i can see that also reminds me a little bit of hellboy in a way as well yeah yeah i think all three of those pretty much are very similar <laughs> as far as like settings backdrops yeah <laughs> all those books have the mundane world and the supernatural world existing side by side i think this book does the same it's really interesting the art's different you know i don't know if i love the art but it really fits with the storytelling i didn't think it was super complex art but i did dig it it's got a certain jazz to it that i like yeah yeah i agree i was instantly intrigued when it said like oh that's our dad i'm like oh that's interesting when i saw the warehouse fight with all the werewolves i'm like oh chris is gonna like this i did (laughs) kind of dug like the blue footprints and following those and stuff like those little details were really interesting to me it's very imaginative yes i'm definitely going to be picking up issue number two and seeing where they're going with all this stuff i'm going to give it four glowing luchadors 
did it. That's what I was going to pick. <laughs> going to give it four leisure suit wolfmans. I will give it three and a half. I reconsidered. Speaking of kind of weird and different, I'm going to take us over to the Commandy Challenge number six from DC Comics, The Insides Out Adventure, written by Steve Orlando, pencils by Philip Tan, inks by Norm Rapmund, colors by Dean White. I say this every time, but for those of you who aren't aware, the Commandy Challenge is a series of... A long-standing tradition in the DC universe. <laughs> They're paying tribute to Jack King Kirby and his characters and storytelling. Each issue is a new artistic team comes in, they continue where the last person left off, and then they leave the next team in this kind of problem that they have to solve. And I have to say, the last issue, they fucked them hard. So hard. Well, it's Bill Willingham. Yeah, they really pulled it out. <laughs> it's really interesting to see them come out with a solution here, which I have to say, I think they did pretty well with a situation that I thought you pretty much could not get your way out of, but they found a way. So you have the tiger Indiana Jones type character comes into the lab where Commandy has had all, all his organs harvested by this little bad scientist lemur. <laughs> I'm telling you, this book is fucking weird, but it's pretty awesome. This issue seems extra long to me though, too. To me, it was a little more disjointed than the other ones. Commandy is still barely alive and the little lemur is trying to kind of weasel his way out of it and saying, I'm the only chance he has left alive, so you can't kill me. And that's when the tiger has this really awesome solution where he shoots the guy in the gut. <laughs> He's like, it's going to take you a little while to die from that. So you're going to have time to fix yourself. And when you fix yourself, whatever you come up with will be able to fix him too. So I thought that was kind of a interesting little way to solve that. They come up with this gene sequencing thing that restores Commandy back to health. I mean, it's kind of a hand wavy, now we're back to normal, you know? I thought it was inventive enough the way they did it. So I'm okay with that. Then you get this weird thing where he's on this hot air balloon ride with this person who has this cybernetic nuclear powered heart. And and they crash land in this bare utopia city. That this is like a real take on, I think, communism. That these are like Russian bears and they're in their Russian city where everyone's equal and they're all in this constant telepathic communication so that the leader doesn't actually make any decisions, but they constantly hold referendums on every decision. The collective conscious makes the decisions. The guy who Commandy was with who has the heart, they can use the heart to power their city so that their life's work can be completed, but it'll kill them because they're, you know, they're taking his heart and commandy doesn't want this to happen obviously so he's talking to the big bear czar alpha of alphas yeah who looks pretty impressive very re he looks fucking gigantic too which is kind of cool for this bear commandy's telling him that you've never had the chance to think for yourself because when you became the alpha of alphas you became subordinate to the will of the entire city so you should break free of that and come with me and rescue this guy which he agrees to do but you find out later that this is kind of like a rude that he's pulled on Commandy. He's getting Commandy out of the city and telling him to run in one direction away from everybody. But you find out that that's actually the opposite direction of where they need to go. And he's kind of luring him out of the city. And the city activates with the guy's heart and turns into this Transformer city that animates into this giant robot that's the bear communist city. I thought that looks so cool. It's almost like a mecha Godzilla made up of a city that's in the shape of a bear. Commandy are fighting over... This reminds me a lot of in Star Wars where Luke and Vader are fighting over the air shaft thing on Cloud City, except this is like a pit of like lava above a reactor. And in the end of the fight, the bear throws Commandy into the reactor, and that's kind of where it ends. This one, the art is really cool. The way that they draw the animals, I think is really, really interesting. I love that tiger adventurer Indiana Jones type 
type character. The bears look imposing and massive. The Community Challenge is kind of a crazy ride that you strap yourself in for. What do you guys think of this issue? I think they really pulled it out. They didn't quite leave the next team in as bad of a situation, but they definitely left an interesting situation. I loved it. I was wondering how they were going to solve this, and I thought their story that they told Malcolm and he stayed alive was great. Yeah, and the art was just phenomenal. I am a big Bill Willingham fan, so I feel like he was one of the first people that actually stepped up and tried to actually screw over the next team. He actually brought it to a new level, which is the whole point of the challenge. I did really like how they worked around that. I actually felt they stepped up and rose the challenge, though I wish they would have done something equally as difficult near the end of their issue. I definitely feel the first half of the book was the stronger yeah. part of the book. The artwork's good. I like the wackiness. I like this to see where they... I like that old type of writing style game where you tell the story and then let someone else pick it up and just go with it. I always find that fun. Sometimes there's hits, sometimes there's misses. It's just part of how it goes. I think Community Challenge is definitely hitting its stride. In these last two issues especially, you're starting to see what the series is supposed yeah. to do. I hope it continues yeah. along full steam. I will give it three and a half. I am done with referendums. I'm going to give it three and a half. Sounds complicated. I gave it three. It's customary to quake with respect. I am taking this up to space with I Am Groot, number two, Marvel Comics, The Forgotten Door, written by Christopher Hastings, pencils and inks by Flaviano, colors by Mario Minez and Raquel Rosenberg. Groot got transported through this weird black hole into like another universe dimension. The Guardians didn't follow him. He fell down to a planet. This picks up where some weird dog face robo hybrid pug thing finds him. Does not understand the Groot's language and just keeps on saying things that he's trying to tell him who he is and soon gets frustrated by it and that's kind of the ongoing joke and theme of this issue. He takes him to like this shanty town that they have there and it's all different types of aliens and things that have come through. They call what he fell through a storm. They're used to these. They happen and sometimes it's debris and ships and sometimes it's people. One of them says that there's a temple they think that has a translator in it that would help but they're not supposed to go in there. Groot being fed up and small decides to go in there where he finds like a weird slug alien monster casino and they're all trying to get into vending machines but apparently when they see Groot they think he's a very delicious snack and they want to go after him. <laughs> he's like a rare delicacy perhaps and he smashes open a vending machine to get away. This alien woman who to me reminds me of the three sisters the crone the maiden and the mother that's how i thought of it. it's like a baby a, a woman and like a, an old crone lady in one finds him and they try to protect them there's this weird flashing to the alien who's running this planet and them trying to track Groot down the big reveal at the end is that he can't go back the way he came or if he escapes it will destroy their universe and so they're going to try to impede him any way they can i read this all new guardians together the annual and this i almost wish i would have been covering the annual instead or even the clue comics came out this is not that strong this is a shittacular version of i hate fairyland <laughs> that's ryan's opinion and he likes to be extra grumpy this is fucking terrible <laughs> yeah i wasn't too happy with it myself it's incomprehensible. There are some funny parts, though. It manages to not be total garbage. The little pug thing in the beginning is really cute. The vending machine stuff goes on way too long, but initially is kind of amusing. So it does have a few little nuggets in the pile of shit, but otherwise, <laughs> it's really not something I would recommend. I feel like with Groot in particular, especially Baby Groot, there's a very popular thing, and, then, and I feel like they could have put a better team on someone handling a Groot comic, give it the popularity that it's due, like some actual backing behind 
behind it. It's disjointed and confusing and not really super engaging. There are some cute spots, but probably not enough to want to read the whole thing. I have no idea what they're going with this. It doesn't really tie in to much of anything. Pick up the Guardian's Annual instead. I'm going to throw an honorable mention to the Clue comic. If you like the old Clue movie with Tim Curry and fourth wall breaking comics, go pick that up instead. But yeah, this, I think it's a good pass and all the other nerds agree with me. And that's coming from me. It takes me a lot to say pass on a Groot comic. What'd you think of it, Rory? Okay, you remember in the 80s how like there was the real Ghostbusters cartoon and then they have the other Ghostbusters cartoon which was like a shit one with the fucking monkey yeah it was like a shitty fucking knockoff that's what this is to me I was all excited and I was like oh cool a group book this will be interesting this will be good and it wasn't that good the story kind of sucked balls there were some funny parts to it for sure this is the shitty ghetto Ghostbusters cartoon to me it's like kind of similar but not not really at, at all you know what's funny about those Ghostbusters cartoons we're talking about is they're not actually based on the movie that we're thinking of there's an older Ghostbusters and that's what it's actually based on Uh which has nothing to do with proton packs and Slimers and any of that oh really so they're like shit we have the rights to Ghostbusters which is not the Ghostbusters everybody's thinking of but fuck (laughs) it let's go with it it just definitely feels like that Saturday morning you're sitting down to watch it and you're like what the fuck is this or it's like you ask for Dr. Pepper and you get like Dr. Dynamite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dr. Skipper. Or <laughs> Mom brings home the Sam's Choice version of, of whatever it is you asked for. You brought me RC Cola. This is the fucking Grandma's GoBots of Groot Comics. Oh, yes. GoBots. Thank you. I love the GoBots. They had more female characters than the Transformers at the time. Don't you be bashing the GoBots. Yeah, get on your fucking scooter and ride that <laughs> shit out of here. GoBots is fucking terrible. All right, let's rate this. I gave it one and a half. Go pick up the clue comment. <laughs> I also will give it one and a half. I think I understand. I'm going to give it one and a half. It's raining bones. This is the best day of my life. <laughs> that little pug is pretty that funny. That part actually I have made to me laugh out loud. I would have rather read a whole comic about that little robot dog. Right? <laughs> I wanted to like it. Okay, so I got something else. We got Edge of the Venomverse, number one, Marvel Comics, written by Michael Rosenberg, pencils by Roland Boshi, inks by Roland Boshi, and Adam Gorham, colors by Daniel Brown. With this one, the concept behind this is the X-23, when she was trying to break out of the facility, when she stabs through a wall, Venom just happens to be behind that wall wall and inhabits her well yeah that's another creature that they've kidnapped yeah so then when she escapes she makes friends sort of with these vagabond street rough type kids little fagans orphans they all kind of like roll together and stuff like that and she like protects them with her claws and her venison so eventually the facility comes looking for her she splits up the venom symbiote amongst all of them to kind of protect them a little bit this big fight scene and that's pretty much what this comic is. And at the end, some dude that looks like Captain America shows up. Oh, God. What can I say about this piece of shit? (laughs) I didn't think it was that bad. This is fucking horrible, man. Okay, I understand that it's like an alternate universe telling of the Venom and stuff, but I didn't find this interesting at all. It's kind of like Wolverine Venom slasher fanfic porn. I think it's definite fan service. 
Yeah. I think there's probably a pretty big overlap between people who like Wolverine and people who like Venom. So the idea behind this, I don't know if you all remember the Spider-Verse series that was out with all the alternate dimension Spider-Mans. And then there was a big crisis that brought them all together, which was a really awesome series, like spectacular. That's where Spider-Gwen came from. It's like 15 Spider-People. But at least there's so many Spider-People. No, that's the quote from a comic that we covered recently. Oh, when they're talking in Guardians of the Galaxy. The idea of this one is kind of the same thing with the Venom symbiote the Venom in different worlds like what if it hadn't went to Peter Parker what if it went to in this case X-23 each one will be a different like superhero that's infected with Venom then some crazy shit's gonna happen and everybody's gonna come together I think this is probably them gearing up in all actuality because they're wanting to do a Venom movie so they're probably trying to Hmm. add a little Venom into your life you've seen the Wolverine movie so let's just uh, throw a little Venom in with Wolverine that'll get him that'll get people buying this shitty comic I kind of liked the way that the kids looked when Venom was with them, half of their face being the venom jaw with the tongue. I thought that was kind of creepy and weird. Yeah, I didn't think the story was all that compelling. I will give you that. Uh There were some moments. I didn't think it was horrible. I didn't think it was the greatest thing I ever read, but it was all right. The artist does some okay spots, but I mean, to me, it's like they weren't doing anything special. I mean, that's stuff that's been done by previous artists with previous usage of the venom. It wasn't like anything new to me. It's like a greatest hits album, right? From a band that you like, but no new songs. What do you think of it, Carissa? I thought it was okay. It didn't feel super venomy to me, which to me is a plus. Just the right amount of venom for me. Just enough that I could take. I really like the kids. I like their ragtag street urchin running scams. Their crimes are like Ocean's Eleven, the PG edition. But they got the sweetest hangout ever. And they're stealing Spidey ice cream. What kid who lives on the street can afford to have a cutting edge Sia haircut? I don't know. If you liked the Logan movie, if you like X-23, or if you like Venom, you'll probably like this. If you don't like any of those things, you're probably not going (laughs) to like this very much. It did feel very X-23 right out of the movie. Yes. She's clearly the model they're using for X-23. I like the kids on the run being little hoodlums. Oh, it's pretty fucking bad. Alright, let's rate it. Let's rate it. So, I'm gonna give this piece of shit one Juggalo symbiote. So you can see there's a clear disparity in opinion here. I will give it three and a half schnicked. I gave it three and a quarter nosebleeds. Alright. So we're still in Marvel. I'm taking us over to another event that's going on in the totally awesome Hulk number 20 from Marvel Comics. This is WMD Part 2, Weapons of Mutant Destruction. Written by Greg Pak. Pencils and inks by Robert Gill. Colors by Nolan Woodard. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have been keep following along with the Weapons of Mutant Destruction storyline. Yeah. Weapon X is kind of reactivated. They're making all kinds of crazy shit that they're powering with Hulk radiation. I, I took the line from Men in Black. He's walking around in an Edgar suit when the cockroach <laughs> monster's walking around in her husband's skin. Every time I follow the Weapon X ones, that's all I think about. That's all funny. So this one is Cho and Lady Deathstrike. The polar bear part made me think of Lost. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. So they're investigating stuff and it opens up with this South American or Central American little banana republic that's gone to shit and these teenagers are trying to escape and there's these polar bears on the beach because there was a zoo that got bombed and then this mutant guy, kind of like generic super strong mutant man, comes out and starts punching the polar bears. Kind of reminds me a lot of Power Man, actually, in a way. 
In his sweet disguise. Oh, yeah. With the little, like, domino mask he's wearing. <laughs> so he saves the kid, and he's like, Hey, kids, could you keep this a secret? Because there's people out there who don't like mutants very much. And then that's when their eyes start turning red, and they turn into those robotic Terminator things and just kill the shit out of him. And you see this scene that reminds me a lot, actually, of Cabin in the Woods, where you have the control people eating pizza and betting on yeah. how long it's going to take for them to kill that mutants. The director shows up and is like, You guys are a bunch of fuck-ups. Your stuff doesn't work that good. This this was like a C minus level mutant here, and it took you guys way too long to kill him. There's a hundred stronger mutants I can name off the top of my head, so you guys aren't cutting it. We're going on to create something new. And then you cut back over to Cho and Lady Deathstrike trying to track down one of these kids who's been recruited by the Weapon X project to become the next test subject. There's this church that they heard about that they go into. They don't exactly break into it, but they're kind of there without letting people know they're there, because you know, most churches don't have locked during the day. And they find this hate propaganda in one of the rooms. Lady Deathstrike is talking about how a church is like the most dangerous place to be because once people think they're doing something for God, they'll kill anyone. Which I thought was kind of a nice little dark insight from her there. And then Cho's response is like, hey, we're not all like that. I'm a Methodist. We don't do that kind of stuff. <laughs> Which amused me very much. <laughs> that was funny. So then the priest shows up and they're like, oh, we're looking for our friend. We heard there's meetings here. And she's like, oh yeah, that group, we used to rent out rooms to them but when we found out what they were into we stopped it and hope you kids aren't getting drawn into the wrong crowd and then she has a line where she's like you know once people start thinking they're doing god's work they'll kill anybody so don't get drawn into that which was kind of an interesting thing that this priest also recognizes what can be going wrong there that she and lady deathstrike both have the same insight there you also get this really cool part where they're making this new robot thing that has like the hulk skin over it and they make it really mad and it escapes from the test tube these are the scientists that i'm talking about looking at their new test subject and he starts getting bigger and bigger and angrier he gets too angry and too big and his muscles rip away from his skeleton and he like collapses into a puddle of goo mm, goo, which was kind of nasty <laughs> when it happened i thought it was awesome <laughs> yeah it was pretty gross it's pretty cool i mean to kind of see like the failed experiments so then cho shows up at this bus stop where he thinks the guy's gonna be and he's reading the book that striker put out his version of mind comp so the kid sees him reading the book and is like hey i see you're reading the book and they start talking about the book and Cho pretends to be a friend of his from second grade and tries to worm his way into his good graces by talking about how his mom was always really mean to them and he always saw the bruises and stuff and he should have said something but he was just a kid and he's really sorry that he didn't say something at the time and they start talking about how the mutants are a danger and stuff and then Cho reveals himself to actually be the Hulk and the kid is like you're a fucking mutant and he's like I'm not a mutant actually I'm helping them but I'm not a mutant. <laughs> that was a great line the weapon x people pull up in their car and they're like get in the car so he starts running towards the car and cho kind of hulks out i actually like the part where he's hulked out and talking to him because he's so fucking yeah. huge he's down on his knees the guy's standing up and the guy still barely comes to his pecs his nipples yeah the hulk is fucking gigantic in here so he's chasing after him and then another one of these hulk terminator robots shows up and starts fighting him and there's another cool part where hulk grabs her by the back of the neck and like slams her onto the sidewalk and her hulk skin falls off it's really gross <laughs> yeah it's like Ew. yeah so they haven't really perfected this hulk combination yet but it's still this fucking nasty ass terminator robot that they end up fighting and lady deathstrike sees the kid getting away so she leaps up on the top of the car and you know what she's gonna fucking do she's gonna rip that car open like a tin can 
Batman had gut everybody inside. And that's when the Hulk kind of reaches over. And again, you get to see how fucking big he is. Because he's holding yeah. Lady Deathstrike in one hand. And his hand is as big as her entire torso. He's gigantic in this. I really like how they do that perspective for that. He's talking about how they're not going to kill anybody. That they're going to save that kid. And then she starts arguing back and he yells at her. And I love this uh, panel because you see the hurricane yes. force of him yelling. Blowing back her hair. Of him getting pissed. It's yeah. fucking awesome. He also pulls an old school Hulk line in there. He's like, we're going to save that kid. And I'm still the strongest one there is. I fucking love that. He's pulling Bruce Banner lines. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. This one felt really good. The action and adventure moved along really well. I felt like he got a lot of cool stuff with Cho and Deathstrike, their interactions. I really enjoyed it. I thought the art was fantastic. The way that they yep. show the Hulk, just how gigantic he is. And when he gets angry, what he can do. But he can still keep it in control, though. This is back to the Cho I like. Because sometimes he gets written in a very strange way. I really like this one. I wasn't such a huge fan of the first Weapons of Mutant Destruction. Like, I thought that was a setup issue. But here, we're off to the races, yeah. and it's pretty great. I thought this is pretty good. The artwork really sets it up. I thought they did a really good job of writing Cho on this one for what he's supposed to be like, like what Carissa said. I just really enjoy him as a character, even though it's like initially, it's like when I first found out about it, I was like, ah, it's kind of a Hulk redo. I just don't feel that way with Cho. His own different character. I feel like Cho and Ironheart are both characters that have the name, but they are their own completely separate characters. I mean, Cho's been around for a long time. They haven't mentioned him being Iron Spider in a long time. <laughs> Maybe they think it will confuse people. There's that panel where the Terminator puts the claws right through his thigh. I'm like, ah! <laughs> and I also like in that, you're talking about that same panel where he's like punching the robot into the ground. You can actually see like the crater when he's hitting the ground with yeah. his fist, yeah. where he's knocking them into the ground. Hulk is strong as there is, for sure. The only part that I found was confused, there's that blonde scientist that's with the team, and then the priest looked the same. Is the mutant Terminator thing right under the church? I'm like, is that the same lady? Might be. Maybe that nice priest is just a decoy to throw them off the trail. Maybe that church really didn't abandon the project. Could be. I feel like if it has a short-haired, blonde-haired woman from one panel, maybe make her a brunette the next scene. I like this one. I will give it four. You're a mutie. A dirty, lying mutie. I really liked it, too. I'm going to give this four and a quarter Hulkarines. I liked it. This is Cho being Cho, and I like Cho, so I'm going to give it four green puddle of Hulk skin ooze. It was gross. <laughs> yeah. Gross green goo. Alrighty. So, those were the books we read this week. You can find all kinds of nerd shenanigans, including our other podcast, Cut the Cord at fourcolornerds.com, or our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music. On Stitcher. On SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. Be sure to rate. Review. And subscribe. Be sure to come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading, nerds. Yay. Yay. Do what I want. You don't know me. <laughs> <laughs>